Hello, and welcome to another episode of History Bites, a food history podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Wasberg, and it's time for part two of Full of Pep, the controversial quest for a vitamin-enriched America. Remember Gaylord Hauser and the health food movements in Southern California? Turns out California's role in affecting American food consumption wasn't limited to Hauser and the Hollywood diet. Starting in the 1920s, food companies began to tout the vitamin content of their foods. Citrus fruits like the grapefruit and oranges that Gaylord Hauser promoted in his cookbook were not all that common in the early 20th century. Sure, citrus was plentiful in places like California and Florida, but how to preserve the fruit? Fruit were shipped seasonally around the country, but citrus fruits tend to ripen all at once. So selling when there was a glut on the market meant that farmers got a lower price, and shipping whole fruit was expensive. Juice seemed like the ideal method of extending the life of citrus fruits, but in the 1920s, canned orange juice literally came in cans. The juice was cooked during the canning process, and the acids in the juice leached a metallic taste off of the cans. The flavor was not anywhere near that of fresh juice. The rise of Florida's orange juice industry in particular has led to the idea, even today, that oranges and orange juice are the best dietary source of vitamin C. In actuality, foods like raw cabbage, dark leafy greens, and bell peppers contain significantly higher levels than oranges. So how did orange juice become known as the vitamin-rich breakfast beverage of choice? Prior to World War II, most Americans consumed orange juice by hand-juicing oranges when they were available, primarily November through June, which is why you see so many of those classic glass orange juicers and the occasional metal lever action one in vintage thrift shops and flea markets. If you wanted a good glass of orange juice, you had to squeeze it yourself. This also meant that people tended to consume small amounts of juice. Those classic juice glasses from the 1930s and 40s are tiny by today's standards. On average, only 4 to 6 ounces. A far cry from the 8 to 16 ounce glass most modern Americans use in their households. But those small juice glasses were also accurate your average serving size of juice is only half a cup, or four ounces. All this hand juicing, though, meant that Florida and California growers often had a glut of oranges on the market all at once, meaning lower prices. Which was good for orange lovers, but not so great for growers. So, how to market orange juice year-round? Big growers turned to a burgeoning health crisis. Acidosis. Vitamin researcher Elmer McCullum, who had isolated vitamin A after Casimir Funk's earlier vitamin B discovery, yeah, uh, guess who named the vitamins, became famous in the U.S. for his vitamin research. His publication of Vitamin Deficiency in Rats, complete with disturbing photos of emaciated rats with patchy coats, further cemented his reputation. His self-promotion helped the general public learn more about vitamins, but also help them learn to fear the effects of vitamin deficiency. In 1928, Elmer McCollum wrote an article for McCall's magazine outlining the symptoms, both real and those from his imagination, of acidosis. This dreaded disease was in fact a real illness, 
but almost exclusively affected diabetics and people on very high-fat, low-carbohydrate diets. Unfortunately, McCollum and medical doctors began attributing a whole host of symptoms to acidosis. In reality, acidosis is a lowering of the pH of the blood and bodily tissues. Real symptoms include headaches, fatigue, tremors, and confusion. Left untreated, damage to the cerebrum may result in a coma. McCollum and other doctors also listed lassitude, malaise, nausea, sometimes vomiting, weakness, and loss of appetite, as well as muscle weakness and chronic fatigue. Today, the primary treatment is a dose of sodium bicarbonate, also known as baking soda. But in the 1920s, orange juice was touted as a cure for acidosis. According to McCollum, orange juice and other acid-tasting foods actually turned alkaline once they got to the stomach. It was non-acid-tasting foods such as beef, pork, bread, and eggs, which supposedly produced acid in the body. His claims were repeated by other doctors around the country, and suddenly oranges and other citrus fruits were in high demand. But by the mid-1930s, some experiments had proven McCollum's claims about acid-producing foods false, and the hysteria around acidosis began to fade. Citrus growers, however, skillfully turned their marketing from a cure for acidosis to a rich source of vitamin C. Acidosis and McCollum's advice lingered on, however. He eventually argued that eating an alkaline diet would help people lose weight, which became known as the Beverly Hills diet. Even today, the idea of acid and alkaline-producing foods lingers on in food and diet books and blogs around the world, perhaps because of the kernel of truth in the real symptoms of acidosis. As fears of vitamin deficiencies and diseases like acidosis began to wane, the idea that taking vitamin supplements would improve your overall health, fend off illness, and even promote energy began to grow. Big orange growers still had the problem of year-round marketing of their products. Thankfully for them, World War II arrived, and with it the push to help soldiers prevent scurvy through their rations. The War Department started with crystallized lemon juice, which soldiers soon rejected due to the unappetizing taste. The search for an alternative began. Unfortunately for the soldiers, it wasn't until 1948 that the scientists, in conjunction with Florida growers, finally found the solution. Frozen orange juice concentrate. Touted as a drudgery-saving, healthful, vitamin-packed drink, orange juice concentrate was an immediate hit thanks to the constant promotion by big growers, and soon became an essential part of a balanced breakfast. Even Bing Crosby, in cartoon form, got in on the game in the 1950s with this jingle for Minute Maid. Bing Crosby loves Minute Maid. Here's wonderful news for you and me That Minute Maid gives more vitamin C So why squeeze orange juice yourself? When doctors say Minute Maid orange juice is better for your health Yes, Minute Maid orange juice is better for your health That's right, penny for penny, fresh frozen Minute Maid is even better for your health than home-squeezed orange juice You see, Minute Maid buys only special oranges Blends and freezes the juice in a special way Result is, penny for penny, you get more of these precious vitamins and minerals. 
Vitamin C, vitamin A, vitamin B, iron, calcium, which all adds up to healthier teeth, sturdier bones, better growth, rich red blood, and more vitality. No other frozen orange juice offers proof of these results. Ah, uh, all those vitamins and minerals. That's for me, boy. Remember, Minute Maid Orange Juice is better for your health. By the 1980s, not from concentrate orange juices were being developed, primarily by Minute Maid, who released their bottled orange juice in the 1990s. A mixture of orange juice, water, sugar, and something called a flavor pack, which was made from orange oil and essences extracted from the skin and pulp, the juice far surpassed frozen in both taste and convenience. Today, although not from concentrate orange juice is extremely popular, there is increasing concern over the content of the flavor packs and the high sugar content of the orange juice. In some brands, it's higher than the same serving of Coca-Cola. Orange juice was only the tip of the vitamin iceberg. Vitamin enrichment also had its roots in the 1920s. In 1926, thiamine was the first vitamin to be isolated from the foods which produced it. This led to a revolution in food processing, as white flour, stripped of its germ, was enriched with vitamins, and milk and salt were fortified with vitamin D and iodine, respectively. These days, you can even get orange juice enriched with calcium. From the 1920s to the 1950s, this led to products like vitamin-enriched donuts, the miraculous Wonder Bread, and other foods and food-like substances of dubious nutritional content beefed up with vitamins to make them more appealing to consumers. Here's how to help build strong bodies eight ways. Eat Wonder Bread. You want to grow bigger and stronger, don't you? Golly, sure. Okay. A sandwich daily and two slices of Wonder Bread every meal give you eight elements you need. As much muscle-building protein as roast beef, as much calcium for bones and teeth as cottage cheese, as much phosphorus for cell metabolism as this egg, as much iron for red blood as three lamb chops, as much vitamin B1 for appetite as fried liver, as much vitamin B2 for growth as this much cheese, as much niacin for mental health as six sardines, as much energy as two glasses of milk. That's why you can help yourself grow bigger and stronger eight ways with Wonder Bread. I mean grow bigger and stronger eight ways. So be sure to eat Wonder Bread. Get Wonder Bread fresh at your grocer's today. Breakfast cereals, especially the highly processed sweetened kinds designed to appeal to children, are probably the biggest source of artificially added vitamins for Americans today. By the 1930s, isolated vitamins began to be marketed in pill form, and the modern vitamin supplement industry was born. Mother, listen to the clocks. Come into the land of chocks. We'll have fun and find out why. Chocks brand is the one to buy. I'm a panda bear with good news to share about vitamins called chocks. They're just great to chew. Fresh fruit flavor, too. So good. That's chocks. I'm a talking horse, and my tip, of course, is to always count on chocks. Pillow shape just so, colors all aglow. All yours with chocks. 
Now, Mother, you work hard, we know, to fix good food that makes them grow. But do they eat what they like and leave the rest? Give them chocks each day and you've done your best. Chocks ensures them, yes, indeed, with all the vitamins they'll normally need. Mother, listen to the clocks. Morning is the time for chocks. Chewable chocks in a bottle or a box. In 2012, more than half of Americans were taking some form of vitamin supplement. By the time the United States entered World War II in 1941, the federal government had become increasingly aware of the problem of malnutrition in the general populace. Military conscription meant that young men from all over the country were getting physical examinations, and a shocking number of them were unfit for duty due to malnutrition. With the nation still recovering from the Great Depression, which left tens of thousands of households in abject poverty, This should not have come as such a surprise to officials in Washington, but it did help galvanize the nutrition science industry, as scientists were recruited from university home economics and nutrition programs, some of them only a decade or two old, to help the government determine the best course of action. The imposition of rationing also meant that nutritionists would play an important role in shaping the American diet for the duration of the war. The Food and Nutrition Board formed by the National Academy of Science in 1941, created the first recommended daily allowances, calculating the calories and vitamins necessary for the average adult person to live healthfully. In 1943, the United States Department of Agriculture released the National Wartime Nutrition Guide and the Basic 7 Guidelines for Good Nutrition. Of the Basic 7, Group 1 was green and yellow vegetables, some raw, some cooked, frozen, or canned. This group was meant to provide adequate niacin intake. Group two was oranges, tomatoes, grapefruit, or raw cabbage, or salad greens. This group was obviously based on vitamin C content. Group three was potatoes and other fruits and vegetables, raw, dried, cooked, frozen, or canned, meant to provide bulk and other vitamins when more filling food was scarce. Group four was milk and milk products fluid, evaporated, or dried milk, and cheese, which emphasized calcium. Group 5 was meat, poultry, fish, eggs, or dried beans, peas, nuts, or peanut butter, meant to provide adequate protein. Group 6 was bread, flour, and cereals, naturally whole grain or enriched or restored. This group was designed to provide adequate thiamine, and enriched bread often contained thiamine, riboflavin, and niacin, to make up for the vitamin and mineral deficiencies caused by separating the brown hull and germ from the white starch of wheat. And finally, group 7, which consists entirely of butter and margarine fortified with vitamin A. Yes, you heard right, an entire food group of butter, which naturally contains vitamin A, especially when made from grass-fed milk, as it would have been during the 1940s. These basic 7 recommendations were designed to encourage Americans to eat something from each group every day. Although meat and citrus fruits are emphasized in group 2 and 5, ration-friendly alternatives like cabbage, tomatoes, beans, nuts, and peanuts are mentioned. Dried and evaporated milk are also listed as acceptable alternatives to fluid milk. On the back of the USDA's National Wartime Nutrition Guide are listed a dozen hints on conservation, including buy fresh fruits and vegetables before spending ration points on canned foods, Serve some fruits and vegetables raw. Cook others in their skins, jackets, or natural coverings. 
Cook vegetables in small amounts of water and only until tender. Serve vegetables in water in which they were cooked, or use this water in soups, gravies, and sauces. Use leftover juice from canned or cooked fruit for cold drinks. These hints in particular were designed to retain vitamins. By the 1940s, scientists knew that many vitamins and minerals were most concentrated in the skins of fruits and vegetables, and also that vitamins and minerals leached out into cooking water, especially when vegetables were soaked in cold water for hours, cooked with baking soda, and or boiled for a long time. All 19th century methods designed to make vegetables more palatable. Other wartime advice included eating organ meats, which were not only cheap and plentiful in an era when meat was tightly rationed, but also vitamin and mineral rich. Milk was touted throughout the first half of the 19th century as a perfect food, containing protein, carbohydrates, and fat, as well as vitamins and calcium, all in one glass. Cottage cheese was also pushed during both World War I and II as a good, cheap protein alternative made from calcium-rich milk. World War II not only helped introduce ordinary Americans to the importance of vitamins and minerals, it significantly homogenized American foodways and spread scientific nutrition information across the country. The armed forces served foods that reflected primarily New England food preferences. Nutrition scientists, with their founding mothers, Fanny Farmer and Ellen Richards, hailing from New York and Massachusetts, also touted Yankee-style recipes in their educational efforts. And that meat-and-two-veg style of food so common for most of the 20th century? Although influenced by British cuisine, that style of cooking became increasingly common in the 20th century because single foods were much easier to deduce the calories of than mixed foods such as stews, casseroles, and other mixed dishes like pilafs, pastas, grain-based dishes, chopped vegetable salads, and more. It didn't help that many of these dishes had connections to immigrant cultures, upper-crust Yankees considered unsavory. Nutrition scientists themselves began to take a more prominent role in American society during World War II. Originally started as an acceptable way for women to pursue science professionally, home economics and nutrition science became wedded together starting in the 1930s. Adele, how did you first become interested in nutrition? Home economist Adele Davis was one of those nutrition home ec frontrunners. Actually, I came indirectly because I lived on Indiana Farm as a kid. She studied home economics at Purdue from 1923 to 25 and graduated with a degree in household sciences in 1927 from UC Berkeley. And uh, so I got very fond. All my sisters had gone to Indiana University, and the only thing they taught at Purdue was home economics. So I started out at home economics. She also received further training in nutrition at Fordham and Bellevue Hospitals in New York. Then um, I went on and got my hospital training in New York City as a dietitian. And I was very disillusioned by that because I was all full of idealism and how we could make people healthy with good nutrition. And, and uh, the diets were just horrible. We fed people on 19 cents a day. If they got a gun in their hands, they could have shot us, I'm sure. But we didn't see the people. And so I didn't like that. I liked people too much. Moving to California in 1931 to start a consulting business, she graduated from the University of Southern California with an MS in biochemistry. She published a few books in the 1930s and early 40s, but it wasn't until her 1947 book, Let's Cook It Right, that she finally won significant acclaim. 
Although it was considered eccentric at the time, Let's Cook It Right is the result of Adele's 1930s and 40s nutrition education. In it, she exalts milk, cottage cheese, organ meats, vegetables cooked to retain vitamins, and whole grains. If you know your World War II history, in some ways it reads like a 550-page USDA pamphlet on nutrition and cooking. There's a whole chapter on milk drinks, including such gems as Pineapple Float, which combines powdered milk, which Davis thought was more nutritious than liquid milk, with pineapple juice and ice cream, as well as yogurt drinks, which in the late 1940s would have been almost totally foreign to the average American. Let's Cook It Right is, however, an interesting cookbook for its time. The emphasis on whole grains, the substantial vegetable section, and the rather small dessert section stand out in an era when cookbooks were often absolutely dominated by dessert chapters, and when many cooks across the United States thought vegetable cooking was heating up a canned vegetable to go with their meat and potatoes. Adele's writing style was chatty and down-to-earth, while still sounding adequately scientific to impress the lay reader with her education. Sadly, Adele's later works do not live up to her first bestseller. Let's Have Healthy Children was published in 1951. Let's Eat Right to Keep Fit was her 1954 answer to diet and exercise books. And Let's Get Well was published in 1965. As she gained popularity in the 1960s with her advice to avoid processed foods, more and more people began to look to her as a diet and nutrition guru. Are there any general rules that you can throw out to the public for keeping themselves healthy with good nutrition? Yes, I gave that in quite a good deal of detail while ago, just natural foods. Whole grain bread, cereals, fruits, vegetables, milk, cheese, eggs. It's that simple? Yeah, it's that simple. There's nothing refined if you really want to build health. She became so popular that she even appeared on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson. In a 1971 interview for Life magazine, Davis said, I know how it feels to be sneered at. In the early days, I'd get so discouraged I'd cry. For years, people thought I was a kooky crank. And for many doctors, she was. She advocated for organic foods and hormone-free beef and against processed packaged foods long before such ideas were later mainstreamed in large part thanks to her. I think that a very great, great deal of sickness is because of the refined foods. I think we're literally at the mercy of the uh, unethical food, um, refined food people, the people who take all the minerals and vitamins out of the sugar, out of the flour, um, make hydrogenated fats rather than leave the natural good fats. She also advocated for composting and soil improvement, which she thought would improve the mineral content in foods. And she was probably right. More recent research has proven that most modern commercially produced produce has fewer nutrients than those prior to the Green Revolution in agriculture, which relies heavily on chemical fertilizers to improve yields. But as yields increase, the mineral and vitamin content of fruits and vegetables are diluted. On the subject of sugar, Adele said, People usually overdo sweets horribly, because for many people, sweets equal love. Parents who don't know how to love their children give them sweets instead. That somewhat strident expert tone attracted hordes of devotees, especially young parents yearning for guidance on what to feed their children. She introduced ordinary Americans to everything from homemade granola to yogurt. As with Gaylord Hauser, Adele began to expand her public role from nutritionist to medical expert, recommending vitamins and good diet 
as cures for everything from alcoholism, divorce, and suicide to childhood ailments and obesity. Let's Have Healthy Children would prove particularly problematic for both Adele and her readers, as impressionable young mothers took Adele's advice on vitamins and colic remedies to the detriment of their children. Two lawsuits in the 1970s, one regarding a child who grew extremely ill from overdosing on a vitamin A supplement, and the other a child who died from Davis's recommended colic treatment, marred her celebrity and led to her almost complete withdrawal from public life. In addition, scientific reviews of her almost innumerable citations found that almost all of them either misinterpreted the studies they cited or were outright false. Today, she has been largely discredited by the scientific community, which is a bit of a shame, really, because like Gaylord Hauser, her basic understanding of nutrition is sound. Organ meats, whole grains, plenty of fruits and vegetables, and protein-rich dairy are good for you. And cooking your fruits and vegetables to minimize vitamin and mineral loss is an excellent practice. But as with many health and diet gurus, her advice was good only so long as she didn't dole out advice better served by medical professionals. Although Adele Davis helped mainstream the idea of vitamins as crucial to good health, it would take a two-time Nobel Prize winner to ingrain vitamins in the modern American diet. Linus Pauling was a respected and well-known scientist, starting in the 1930s. He basically created the field of molecular biology. He did groundbreaking work in the genetics of great apes in relation to humans. He had also done something no other person on Earth had done he'd won two unshared Nobel Prizes, one in science and the other the Nobel Peace Prize for his anti-nuclear and anti-war efforts. In 1961, he was on the cover of Time Magazine's Men of the Year issue. At a talk in 1966, at the age of 65, Pauling mentioned a desire to live longer so that he might continue his scientific work. A man who had attended the lecture later wrote to him, Dr. Stone, whose doctorate came from a non-accredited correspondence school, recommended that if Pauling began taking mega doses of vitamin C, it would indeed prolong his life. For some reason, Pauling took this unsolicited advice and began to report increased health and vitality. He said, In particular, the severe colds I have suffered several times a year all my life no longer occurred. He began to take higher and higher doses of vitamin C, and in 1970 published Vitamin C and the Common Cold, claiming that megadoses of vitamin C could cure almost any ailment, but especially the common cold. Books began to fly off the shelves, and drugstores couldn't keep vitamin C in stock, as more and more Americans flocked to the gospel of vitamin C. In 1971, Pauling went even further claiming that vitamin C could cure cancer. He based this idea on the assertion from a Scottish physician that cancer patients given vitamin C fared better than those that received none. Alas, further analysis of the study indicated that the patients who fared better were already healthier to begin with. Despite study after study that proved him wrong, Pauling refused to back down. He claimed that megadoses of vitamin C, when combined with other vitamins, minerals, and other essential elements, could cure virtually anything, including AIDS, which was fast becoming an epidemic in 1970s America. 
Of course, he was wrong on all counts. Vitamins have no measurable influence on the common cold, cancer, AIDS, or any other non-deficiency disease. In fact, in 2013, the Annals of Internal Medicine, an internationally respected medical journal, came out with an editorial that stated, We believe that the case is closed. Supplementing the diet of well-nourished adults with most mineral or vitamin supplements has no clear benefit and might even be harmful. These vitamins should not be used for chronic disease prevention. Enough is enough. The editorial went on to recommend that the billions of dollars Americans spend on unnecessary vitamin supplements be spent instead on naturally vitamin-rich whole foods like fruits, vegetables, nuts, dairy, and legumes. Two exceptions are folic acid for pregnant women and possibly vitamin D. The vitamin supplement industry was not happy about this editorial. But then they've been operating almost entirely regulation and oversight free since 1972 when the FDA attempted to regulate megadose vitamins, requiring producers to prove that they were safe for human consumption. Vitamin supporters concocted a bill in Congress to limit the regulation of vitamin supplements. The bill passed by a huge margin and officially became law in 1976. Since then, extensive research has been done on the effects of higher than recommended daily doses of vitamins. Not only have they been found to have little or no positive effect, in many instances, they actually increase cancer risks through something called the antioxidant paradox. Vitamins are antioxidants, which kill free radicals. Free radicals can damage DNA and cell membranes in the body and are linked to aging. But free radicals also help prevent the growth of new cancer cells and help kill bacteria. So wiping out free radicals through megadoses of vitamins left people more vulnerable to developing cancer. Linus Pauling and Adele Davis both died of cancer, Pauling at the age of 93 and Davis at the age of 70. Gaylord Hauser died in 1984 at the age of 89 from complications of pneumonia, but otherwise still in good health. Were vitamin supplements the cause of Pauling and Davis's deaths? We may never know, but it sounds like they may have contributed. So why did Gaylord Hauser, Adele Davis, and Linus Pauling fall victim to the idea that vitamins could cure so many things? One reason has to do with how vi Americans view nutritional information. We have a tendency to oversimplify nutrition and look for the quick miracle fix, which is also why we're so susceptible to weight loss diets and fads. Everything from the 1930s grapefruit diet to Atkins to modern-day detox juice fasts. As a side note, there's also no scientific evidence supporting the detoxification qualities of juice fasts or any other detoxing diet. That's what your liver is for. Unlike other sciences, nutrition science seems to gain public awareness only when studies are made that reinforce our preconceived notions about nutrition, like when chocolate, red wine, and coffee are good for you. There also seems to be a historical tendency to allow scientific studies to go unchallenged, which means that bad science, such as the vilification of animal fats and eggs under the saturated fats witch hunt, gets disseminated as fact for years, if not decades, before someone revisits the study and finds flaws or outright proves it wrong. In addition, food industries which benefit from pseudoscience are today so powerful, both economically and politically, that sometimes important studies either never get funded 
or get overwhelmed by industry-friendly rebuttals. Our medical training programs also often neglect nutrition training for doctors. Nutrition is currently a specialist field, meaning that doctors don't always fully understand the connections between nutrition, health, and lifestyle. The solution? Trust the empirical, peer-reviewed, challenged, and replicated studies, be skeptical about health claims, and follow Michael Pollan's advice. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And if you've got a cold, skip the vitamin C. Yes, even the orange juice. Just get extra sleep and stay hydrated. That's all for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed our journey through the vitamin history of the 20th century. For an enormous list of the primary and secondary sources for this podcast, as well as some of Adele Davis's most appealing recipes, please visit www.thefoodhistorian.com. I'm your host, Sarah Wasberg. Thanks for listening.